We come back to the book of Acts, the exciting New Testament book of Acts. We're calling this series The Church, Zero to Sixty, because the book of Acts chronicles the true story, the historical story of how the church of Jesus Christ was born in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost, and then the first 60 years of the church's history is given to us in the book of Acts. So hence our series titled Acts, the book of Acts, 0 to 60. And we find ourselves this morning coming back to chapter 12. So if you have your copies of God's Word, would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12? We're going to begin looking at verse 18 and going through Acts 12 until verse 24. The title of this sermon is The Long Arm of the Lord. The Long Arm of the Lord. And when we were last having sermons in the book of Acts, we considered that when a prayer meeting became embarrassing. And you'll recall, I hope, from Acts 12, verses 1 to 17, that that was the time when the fledging church prayed earnestly that the apostle Peter would get out of jail. But then they disbelieved the report that he, in fact, was out of jail. And those in the prayer meeting who doubted that God would get Peter out of jail, although the church prayed that God would do so, they even called the one who reported to them, Rhoda, that he was out of jail and knocking at the gate. They even called her, um, how shall we say it, that she was beside herself. You're just beside herself. And they said, that's not Peter you see at the gate. That must be his angel. And that's when that prayer meeting became embarrassing. And that's when any prayer meeting becomes embarrassing, when the saints of God are trusting God for specific prayer requests and doubting that God will, in fact, do what he's being asked in prayer to do. We don't ever want to have embarrassing prayer meetings at Calvary Bible Church. We want to be people of faith, people of trust in a big God who's large and who is in charge and who hears and answers prayer. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so moving on from when the prayer meeting got embarrassing, early part of chapter 12, the true story is chronicled for us in the rest of chapter 12. And what we're going to see today is this truth, that God always deals with the enemies of his own children. God always deals with the enemies of his children either sooner or later. That's the big idea this morning. And so I'm going to read verses 18 to 24 with you. Hear the word of God. Acts chapter 12, 18 to 24. This is right after Peter's explained his supernatural jailbreak to the prayer meeting. And then we pick it up at verse 18. Then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had happened become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him, Peter, and had not found him, he examined the guards at the prison and commanded that they should be put to death. That wasn't according to Roman law, but he was so angry, he decided to execute the jail guards who had uh, allowed Peter to get away from jail. Carrying on. And he, that is King Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend. 
They asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. This is our passage for consideration this morning. So sometimes, uh, for a short while, the enemies of God's children, like King Herod, do whatever they want. For example, this King Herod. King Herod, according to what we have just read, was so angry that he had Peter's jail guards executed. A sentence far more severe than was prescribed by Roman law. Herod got his way. He did what he wanted. Goes on. He traveled to Caesarea. Caesarea was a Roman military stronghold. So he went to a place that he felt safe. Did what he wanted. King Herod then also, the persons of Tyre and Sidon groveled to him to gain his mercy and peace because they were counting on him to give them food rations. They needed the food of Rome, so they sweet-talked King Herod. Things were going well for him. He did whatever he wanted, although he was an enemy of God's children. Sometimes the enemies of God's children, for a short time, get away with what they want to do. It goes on for King Herod. He gained a wildly adoring audience for his speech, and they even worshipped him as God. They called him God, and they worshipped him blasphemy. But he accepted the worship and God struck him because God's children's enemies will not be able to do whatever they jolly well please forever. And there was an end to King Herod. But sometimes for a short while, the enemies of God's children do whatever they want. Maybe you know someone who's an enemy of you as God's child And he or she is doing whatever they jolly well please, it would seem to you at least. Maybe you can think of someone who is an enemy of God's church or an enemy of you as God's child, and they seem to be getting away with whatever they want to do without God stopping them, chastening them, punishing them. And you say, what gives, Lord? Why is this? I'm your child. Why is this person getting away with being my enemy and doing whatever they would please? Well, there's a biblical principle in 1 Peter 3, verse 12 that says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That's you if you're saved. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. If you know Christ as Savior, God's ears are open to your prayers. Isn't that great? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's a principle we can take to the bank. But that being true, it's awkward sometimes, and if we're honest, it's sometimes discouraging when God's eyes on the righteous don't seem to bring God's protection. That can be discouraging. 
It can be discouraging in the short run when God's ears open to the prayers of the righteous don't seem to yield answers to prayer. It's hard. And it's also difficult when God's face, remember, God hid his servant in the Old Testament in the cleft of the rock because he couldn't see God's frontal face because of God's a consuming fire, and he was only allowed to see God's back, as it were, because that's the compassionate, merciful, gracious side of God. But the face of God, sometimes it makes us scratch our heads that God's face, his consuming fire, we're told is opposed to evildoers, but God in his own reasons and for his own purposes doesn't stop their evil doing. Maybe you think of someone in your family, in your workplace, in politics, in business, or the grander global stage. Maybe you think of someone who's purely evil. It's not even debatable if they're evil. It's known that they're evil. They claim to be evil, but God hasn't stopped them yet. What do you do with that? How do you process that? Sometimes God's delayed protection and God's delayed answers to prayer and God's delayed stopping of evil can cause some of God's children to wrongly conclude that good things happen to bad people and that crime pays. We've heard about the long arm of the law referring to the police. We've heard about the long arm of the law, but there's another arm that is far longer than the police's arm, and that is the long arm of the Lord. And we must remember when we see evil persons not being stopped and our prayers for them to stop not being answered, that God has a longer arm than the police. We must remember that the long arm of the Lord is extremely long. God's arm, in fact, is so long that sometimes it reaches across the decades to bring justice. God's arm is so long that sometimes it reaches across the centuries to bring justice. And sometimes God's arm is so long that it reaches over the millennia to bring justice. God's arm is so long, so much longer than the police whom we support and I trust whom we pray for. Now, are there some examples of God's arm, the arm of the Lord? Yes, there's plenty. What about God destroying all of the world's habitants except a family of eight in an ark with a global flood after the wickedness of earth had been well entrenched for thousands of years? The long arm of the Lord. Or what about God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah after its immoralities, when that immorality in that city had been established, well-established for hundreds of years, the long arm of the Lord eventually reached over and struck fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Or what about God's destruction of the Egyptian army that were pursuing the children of Israel after the children of Israel had been hard labor slaves in Egypt for 430 years? And as they escaped Egypt and Pharaoh finally let them go because of the 10 plagues and they're going away from Egypt and then Pharaoh changed his mind and sent his army after them to bring them back to be slaves again and they faced the Red Sea. You know what God did? With the long arm of the Lord, God parted the Red Sea so that the children of Israel could cross the Red Sea on the sea floor to the other side, and as soon as the Egyptian army pursued, God's long arm of the Lord released the water of the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army perished and drowned. The long arm of the Lord. And the long arm of the Lord is such that one day, Satan, who is on a leash right now, but doing a lot of bad stuff, One day, the long arm of the Lord is going to see that this Satan is confined for a thousand years. When Jesus' model prayer, disciples' prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's the thousand-year future millennial kingdom when Satan is confined in a pit. And then after being released by God for one final battle, Jesus Christ will decisively defeat Satan all those aside with Satan by the word of his mouth, and then Satan will be cast into the lake of fire for conscious, eternal torment. The lo- you want to talk about the long arm of the Lord. That Satan one day will confine Satan and then will uh, banish Satan to the lake of fire and torture at the end of the age after he has accused after he has lied, after he has murdered for over 6,000 years. You want to talk about a long arm of the Lord. God's arm is so long that it sometimes reaches across decades, sometimes reaches across centuries, and even will reach across multiple millennia to do the judging that needs to be done. Now, for those who don't know our God or his ways, The longer the Lord's arm has to reach, the more they are likely to mock God. You've heard it. You've heard it. Unbelievers mocking God. The length of time between our Lord and Savior's ascension back to his Father's right hand and his future second coming is 2,000 years plus now and counting, right? 2,000 years. And so 2 Peter 3 3 to 10 talks about how some people view that length of time, that delay between the ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ, 2,000 plus years. This is how some people interpret that. Knowing this first, the scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. 
But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, watch it now, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. That means that the 2,000 plus years between Christ's ascension and his second coming is like a weekend to God. Two days. When you're eternal, that's how you see things. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Some people interpret the long arm of the Lord as being that he's not going to keep his promises, that there'll never be justice. They are wrong. To God, a thousand years is like a day. He's not late, and he's just. So our first point today is this. Eventually, God will deal with the enemies of his children. Say that with me. Eventually, God will deal with the enemies of his children. Exodus 14, 14, the children of Israel delivered from the Egyptians by God parting the Red Sea. They were instructed by their leader, the Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. He fought for them by parting the Red Sea, letting them go through. Several million of them were in Egypt as slaves. After the million or so went through, then he crashed the Red Sea waters on the Egyptian army and horses and chariots. By the way, they found the chariots on the bottom of the, the Red Sea, the wheels and stuff. Eventually, God will deal with the elements, enemies, rather, of his children. And Exodus 14, 14 was true for them as they stood on the, the edge of the Red Sea, and it's true for us as a church this morning. God says to us, the Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. The parting of the Red Sea was after 430 hard years of slavery, but God got the last say, killing those who opposed his people. God dealt with the Egyptians. The long arm of the Lord caught up with them. So the first point is eventually God will deal with the enemies of his children. The second point of two today, sometimes God deals with the enemy of his children right away. We like that. We like it. When God deals with our enemies because we are children of God, when he deals with those enemies promptly, quickly, immediately, we like that. We're good with that. This is what happened in today's passage. King Herod had executed James, the brother of John, according to verse 1 of chapter 12. And then King Herod had intended to execute Peter, but God broke Peter out of prison. That's verses 6 to 19 of chapter 12. And then Herod accepted worship as though he were a god. And with that, the Lord had had enough. That's enough. You execute the... 
the jail guards? You want to kill Peter? When you accept worship as God, that's enough. God had had enough. And the Lord swiftly killed King Herod in a most painful way. And in this case, the long arm of the Lord didn't reach over the centuries, didn't reach over the decades, didn't reach over even the years, didn't reach over the months, didn't reach over the days. It reached over the hours. In fact, in this case, the long arm of the Lord first reached out over the seconds after King Herod accepted worship. And God, the long arm of the Lord, afflicted King Herod with a fatal disease to do with worms. And then the long arm of the Lord reached over the next five days, and King Herod, in excruciating pain, died after five days with the worms eating him from the inside out. King Herod accepted worship as if he were a god, and seconds later, bang, God's angel struck him with a worm-eating fatal disease. The reliable Jewish historian Josephus reports of this, that God's slaying of the blasphemous King Herod took five days for him to die. Five days of agonizing pain as the worms ate him alive from the inside out. Can you imagine? Only five days between being the arrogant orator and being dead worm food. Five days. Can you imagine? The presumptuous little J judge who sentenced the jail guards to execution, the presumptuous little J judge, five days later, sentenced to death by the capital J ultimate judge, the Lord. Verses 18 to 23, Acts 12. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend. And they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. And then immediately, immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. The big idea today in the text is this. God always deals with the enemies of his children, sometimes with delay, other times with no delay. Okay. You've been tracking well with me. I know you've been hearing and understanding. So, okay. What should we take from this historical story? What should we 
see change about our lives because of this truth being expounded from God's word. I think there are three takeaways. If you have a pocket, I want you to take these three things away from this sermon so that you can allow God's word to change your thoughts, your outlooks, your perspectives. Number one, takeaway number one, if evil persons are opposing you because you're a child of God, pray for their salvation. I'm a Canadian. My prime minister is evil. He's called evangelical Christians the worst segment of Canadian society. I pray for his salvation. He's an enemy of God's children in Canada, but I pray for his salvation. God is still in the business of changing hearts, even wicked hearts. And only God can make evil enemies righteous friends. Justin Trudeau could be transformed by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ to be a friend of the church. That's how I'm praying. In Matthew 5, verse 44, in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord said, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. That's one thing you could do as a takeaway. If you can think of a person who opposes you and makes your life difficult simply because you're a child of God, you can pray for their salvation. That's one takeaway. Can you think of that person? Can you think of that person who opposes you simply because you're a Christian? Can you make a promise to God that you'll pray for that person's salvation? That's takeaway one. Takeaway two, if evil persons are opposing you because you're God's child, take comfort in the fact that the very, very long arm of the Lord reaches far enough. Be at peace that your Lord will deal with that person or persons. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, Romans 12. You don't have to deal with them. You don't have to make them straight. You don't have to punish them. Leave that to the Lord. Take comfort in the fact that your Lord has a very, very long arm. And with holy God, there's no statute of limitations. In legal parlance, after seven years, there's a statute of limitations on some things. And those things judicially and legally go away. There's no statute of limitations with heaven. You leave that with the Lord. The person who opposed you 10 years ago, the person who opposed you 20 years ago, the person who opposed you 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, you can leave that with your Lord. There's no statute of limitations in heaven. And let me tell you very clearly, no unsaved person will have evil that gets past the great white throne judgment. 
God may stop the evil doing of an evil person well before the great white throne judgment recorded in Revelation chapter 20, but I'll tell you this, that no unsaved person's evil will, will endure past the great white throne judgment without being punished. Revelation 20, 11 to 15 is some of the most sobering truth in all of God's word. It says, then I saw a great white throne. It's a great throne. There's no throne bigger or more important. It's white because the judge on that throne is entirely pure. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before God. And books were opened, plural books. And another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. There are degrees of punishment in hell. And God has books on those who reject Christ. and keeps record of every thought word and deed that was not pleasing to God. Books. God doesn't need the books to remember anything. He's infinite. But he has the books at the great white throne judgment in case any reprobate rejecter of Jesus Christ has the audacity to say, I don't deserve hell. Then the judge will pull out the books that are personalized. And the, ju- the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, each one, one by one by one by one. No group judgments. No judgments by married couples. One by one, by one. The unsaved who reject Jesus Christ when they die, by the time they die, they've rejected him. They stand before the great white throne judgment individually with the books of their sins handy to the judge if he needs them. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Degrees of punishment. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone who's anyone not found written in the book, singular, of life, was cast into the lake of fire. It gives me no joy whatsoever to think about that. I would not want my worst enemy to stand in line at the great white throne judgment. But no unsaved person's evil will be unjudged past the great white throne judgment. The report on the violent end of King Herod warns us about stealing any of God's glory. Our third and last point, if someone treats you as an idol and they want you to steal God's glory from God, stop them. You say, what might that look like, Pastor Rob? I don't think anybody treats me like an idol. 
What might that look like? Well, what might it look like when someone says, I can't live without you? Or someone says, what would I be without you? Or someone says, you're my everything. Or I I owe you everything. Those statements, even with good intention, those statements reflect the person who sees you as a competitor to the glory of God, as an idol. You know, if you say those same things to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's no problem. If you say to Christ, I can't live without you, you're right, it's worship. If you say to Christ, where would I be without you? That's true. If you say to the Lord Jesus, you're my everything, (laughs) then you're on track. If you say to Christ, I owe you everything, you're right. But when you start saying that to another human being, there's trouble. And if you as a human being have someone tell you that and you just let it ride, you just let it sit, that's not good. You want to say, no, you're a believer. You can't live without Jesus. No, you're a Christian. Uh, What would you be without Jesus? No, you're saved. Jesus is your everything, not me. And you're redeemed. You owe everything to the Lord Jesus, not to me. See the difference? Don't accept statements unchallenged that really are reserved for God alone. God is jealous for his own glory. He says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to craven images. He's zealous for his own glory. Isaiah 48, verse 11, God is speaking, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. That's what God says. So when someone wants you to steal some of God's glory by giving you a higher place in their affections, a higher place in their credit, a higher place in their trust, reject it. You can reject it with a smile. Say, that's not for me. (laughs) That's for the Lord. Only God. You know, that's what happened in Acts chapter 10 when we were back there in verses 24 and 26. Do you remember? Acts 10, 24, and 26, the context is the Apostle Peter is sent to meet with a Gentile named Cornelius. Cornelius invites all his family and his connections to hear what Peter's going to preach to them. And in Acts 10, 24 to 26, this is what happened. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Oh, oh. fell at Peter's feet and worshiped him. 26, but Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I myself am also a man. There you go. (laughs) Maybe there's some people this week, you need to pick them up by the armpits and say, stand up. I'm just a woman. I'm just a man. I'm not God. 
Takeaway one. If someone opposes you because you're a child of God's, pray for their salvation. Takeaway two, if evil persons are opposing you because you're God's child, take comfort in the fact that the very, very, very long arm of the Lord reaches far enough. And third takeaway, if someone treats you like an idol and they want you to steal God's glory, stop them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this practical paragraph of your word. We say thank you so much that you have a long arm, Lord, and that is no longer a dread to us since we're in Christ, but rather the fact you have a long arm, Lord, is now gives us a new determination to go on in serving you even though we might face opposition. Lord, we pray for the salvation of those who oppose us. I think of the prime minister in Canada. I pray for Justin Trudeau's salvation. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would accept our thanks that if we're not facing opposition at the moment, we thank you for that. But as someone said in the choir loft before the service, that's probably going to end soon. Lord, we repent of making anything or anyone our greatest good and an idol. We repent of letting anyone make us their highest good. And Lord, we purpose to give you and only you all the glory, for you are worthy and deserving of it. And God's gathered church said, Amen. Amen. Amen.